ಜಾಮಃ ತರೇಕಂ ಜಗತ್ಸಾಕ್ಷಿಪಂ ನಮಃ ಸದೇಕಂ ನಿಧಾನ ನಿರಾಲಂಬಮೀಶಂ ಭವಾಂಬೋಧಿಪೋತ ಶರಣ್ಯಂ ವ್ರಜಾಮಃ On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of this world, do we come for refuge. Om peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Great to be here and to see all of you, many of my old friends and some new friends also. And uh, thanks to Swami Chidbramalanda for that very generous introduction, uh, which I don't know if I can live up to it, but... I would like to share with you some thoughts today, and it being the new year, it seems like a perfect uh, time to wish everyone a happy new year, and to suggest that this, we can make this year our own, our very own year. And that, of course, starts with making this day our very own. What does it mean to make a day our own? The beautiful quote from Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He gave a talk in, uh, it was 1857, called Works and Days. And he gave that lecture many times. It's been written down. And I'd like to quote a few lines from this talk, which seem very pertinent. He says, He only is rich who owns the day. There is no king, rich man, fairy or demon, who possesses such power as that. The days are ever divine. First part of his quote. We, we own so many things, no? Houses and cars and uh, maybe also degrees and um, families. We think we own our families. Mm-hmm. But according to Emerson, the only that person who owns the day is truly rich. What does it mean? Let, let's read a little further. What, he, what does he say? He says, they, means the days, they are of the least pretension and of the greatest capacity of anything that exists. They come and go like muffled and veiled figures, sent from a distant friendly party, but they say nothing. And if we do not use the gifts they bring, They carry them as silently away. What a wonderful idea that the day actually brings us gifts. The day is bringing us gifts, but if we don't make use of those gifts, then the day simply takes them away also. So what are those gifts that the day brings us? What does the day offer us? A day offers us a tremendous opportunity Tremendous opportunity to what? To know who we are. To dwell in the present moment and see the divine shining through everything. Each day offers us a tremendous opportunity 
to manifest the divinity that is within us. Each day offers us a tremendous opportunity to do something for somebody else, to love, to express the love that's in our hearts, and to manifest it in our actions and our thoughts. So these are the gifts, I think, that the days offer us. But if we don't accept these gifts, then the day takes them away again. But next day, again, the day comes. Every day a day comes, isn't it? That's the amazing thing about our embodied state. This earth is spinning around on its axis, and every 24 hours it makes a complete revolution. And because of that, it appears to us that the sun is rising and setting, and every day is a new day, and every night is a wonderful night in which we can relinquish everything and let everything go and go into sleep. So our minds are also set in this kind of rhythm of a day and a night. So each, our, our time, this is the fundamental unit of time really is the day, punctuated by night and sleep. So Emerson gives us a lot of hints here. The days are ever divine, he says and of the least pretension and greatest capacity. Let me read just a little more. He says, such are the days. The earth is the cup and the sky the cover of the immense bounty of nature which is offered us for our daily aliment, our daily nourishment. But what a force of illusion begins life with us and attends us to the end. We are coaxed flattered and duped from morn to eve, from birth to death. And where is the old eye that ever saw through the deception? So he calls this deception, taking from Vedanta, he calls it maya. We are fooled, hmm? We are fooled. And we don't realize that right now is where it's all at. He, say, he goes on to say, an everlasting now reigns in nature. One of the illusions is that the present hour is not the critical, decisive hour. Write it on your heart that every day is the best day of the year. We like to think that some days are better than others. No, some days are tough, some days are good. Kalpataru Day, we celebrated a big celebration. That's a really good day. Hmm? Emerson says, wait, no, write it on your heart. Every day is the best day of the year. Because every day is divine. Every day we have this opportunity. And yet, we seem to be, do, do we own our days or do the days own us? That's the question, do the days own us? There's a very popular song by the Beatles hmm, called Yesterday. I think you all, know, most of you have probably heard it on the radio. Yesterday. All my troubles seem so far away. Now it seems that they are here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. So we like this song. It seemed like things were better yesterday and it's tough today. It's a very, it's a very attractive song. It's a very nice song. It's brilliant songwriters, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And from the standpoint of Vedanta, it is wrong. <laughs> wrong. Not yesterday. Don't believe in yesterday. It's today. Right now. 
What is yesterday? See, it's so strong in, in our culture, in our mindset, yesterday, the good old days. And then, of course, there's tomorrow. You know, remember the musical Annie? How many of you know that, that, that uh, there's a little orphan Annie and Daddy Warbucks, and she sings this very cheerful song. When, when, it, when, she's, when I'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely, I just stick out my chin and grin and say, tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you, tomorrow, you're always a day away. Okay, tomorrow, that's the other option. We can, th- we can live for tomorrow. Today is rotten, but tomorrow is another day, and tomorrow will be better, right? I think we ha- we'll have to tell little orphan Annie, sorry, kiddo, <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> there is no tomorrow. It's always today. There is no tomorrow. Hmm? You know, it's like a sandwich. Sometimes kids, they take, a, they take a sandwich and they don't like the bread, and so they'll just eat the filling. And uh, actually, our whole experience is like that. We're sandwiched in this moment between the past and the future, and most of us go on eating the bread and ignoring the filling. We're just, uh, we're just chewing over the past or imagining the future. Rather, we should uh, discard the bread and just eat the filling, the filling of this day of this moment. So that's the, the quandary in which we find ourselves in, that we seem to be caught in time and that uh, so much of our time is spent in the past and the future and then work. We're working always for what? To finish it so we can get do the next thing. For what then? So there's always the next thing and the next thing. We're always working to finish something so that we can get to the next thing. Where is our time? Where is the life? So let me read a pertinent quote from Swami Vivekananda. All the past and all the future are here in the present, he says. No man ever saw the past. No woman ever saw the past. Did any one of you see the past, he asks. When you think you are knowing the past, you only imagine the past in the present moment. To see the future, you would have to bring it down to the present, which is the only reality. The rest is imagination. The present is all that is. The present is all that is. There is only the one All is here right now. One moment in infinite time is quite as complete and all-inclusive as every other moment. All that is and was and will be is here in the present. Let anybody try to imagine anything outside of it. He or she will not succeed. A beautiful quote. Uh, Swami Vivekananda understands that it is right now that we experience everything. And see how he equates this present moment, this everlasting now, which in Emerson's language, how he equates that with the one, capital O, the one, that infinite reality, which is our true nature, which is of the very nature of existence and consciousness and bliss. That conscious, our consciousness is always in the present moment. It's a kind of interesting uh, 
thought experiment we can do uh, if we call the present moment as time equals zero, t equals zero. That's this immediate moment, t equals zero. Now, whatever we experience, take the light that's coming in through the windows, that's the sunlight. That light was actually created by the sun eight minutes and 20 seconds ago. So when we go out and look at the sun, we're seeing the sun at t minus eight minutes and 20 seconds. It's not right now that we're seeing that light. If we look at the stars in the sky, the closest stars to us in the sky, it's a group of three stars called Alpha Centauri. And we think we're looking at them now, but we're seeing them hmm? 4.3 years ago because the light takes four years and uh, four months or so to get here from there. When the astronomers are looking at a supernova through their telescopes and they're thinking, we're seeing this supernova unfold before our eyes. It could be hundreds of years ago that it was unfolding because the light takes that long to get here. That's something. Well, what about the nerve impulses from our fingers? Hmm? We touch something and we feel that nerve impulse has to go from the tip of the finger through the arm up to the brain center and there it is presented to consciousness. That takes some time, doesn't it? Maybe just a millisecond or two. The neurologist can tell us exactly how long it takes. But so when we touch something, by the time we are aware of that sensation, it's already over. It's, it's happened. It's in the past. Hmm? What about the retina hmm, that receives the light impressions? And it's a pretty short distance from the retina to the uh, visual cortex in the brain. But... There's, it, it's a few inches. It takes some time for the nerve impulses to go from the retina to the visual cortex and then to be transmitted to consciousness. Hmm? So that means whatever we, look, whatever we see, we're seeing in the past. It's already over. So then how can we be? How can we be in this present moment? If everything we experience through our senses, through our ears and eyes uh, and tongue, everything is in the past. Mm. Yet, we, the experiencer, are ever in the present tense, ever in the eternal now, the everlasting now. Because, uh, because that is the nature of consciousness. It, consciousness must be now, in this moment. How to realize this now? How to uh, get out of the past and out of the future and be in this now? And why? Why should we actually want to do that? But the why may be easier than the how. <laughs> the, why, the why is that it brings us tremendous peace, tremendous freedom, tremendous joy to escape the hold of the past and the future over us, to be here now. It's a wonderful experience because then we are aware of our own glory, of our own existence, which is bliss. So the why is not so difficult. Not that I am something, 
simply that I am. Not that I am a man or a woman or a scientist or a father or a daughter. I am. That I am right now. So it frees us when we realize this. It frees us to engage fully with whoever is in front of us or with whatever task we are doing. And we can let our lives unfold in the radiance of our own being. Hmm? The radiance of the everlasting now. That is existence, consciousness, love. The radiance of our true nature. And yet how to do it? Because it seems like our time is not... We are not... Uh, masters of time, but slaves of time. Times, we feel like we have a little bit of time and it constantly gets taken away from us. We have only 24 hours in the day and it's constantly being taken away from us by so many demands. Our boss, our parents, our children, our spouses, the tax man, the television, all are stealing our time. How much is left for us? And it seems like there's never enough time. We have too much to do and not enough time in which to do it. Emerson points out in the same talk that he gave, he says that another illusion is that there is not time enough for our work. Then he quotes a Native American wise man. He says, a poor Indian chief of the Six Nations of New York made a wiser reply than any philosopher to someone complaining that he had not enough time. Well, said Red Jacket, I suppose you have all there is. We can say, I, I don't have enough time. Well, you have all there is. <laughs> and, how much, and where is that time? How to have it? I think the art is to learn to make all time our own. And that means simply being present in every moment. When we can do that, then when we are with our boss, arguing with our boss, it's still our time. Why should, why should we give the time away to our boss? It's our time. When we're uh, teaching our kids, it's also our time. When we are doing our work, it's our time. Every moment is our time. There's a fascinating incident which took place in the year 1900. Swami Vivekananda was visiting San Francisco at the time, spending a few weeks there. And on March 25th, there was a lecture scheduled at Union Square Hall on Post Street, advertised to begin at 3 p.m. And uh, Mr. Thomas Allen, one of Swami Vivekananda's close disciples, was, uh, uh, wrote some reminiscences about what happened. He writes that at 3 p.m., Swamiji was not there. The audience had assembled. Mr. Allen is going to introduce Swami Vivekananda to the audience. And the posted time is 3 o'clock. And where is Swami Vivekananda? Where is Swami? He's not there. What to do? So they're waiting and they're waiting. And a few times he goes out onto Post Street to see where is he, where is he, where is he? Finally, at about 3.30, he spots him coming up the street slowly. So Mr. Allen goes down to Swamiji, and he says, uh, Swami, don't you know you're late? The audience has been waiting. Swami Vivekananda says, Mr. Allen, 
I am never late. I have all the time in the world. All time is mine. Then Mr. Allen says, Well, Swami, the audience may not feel the same way as you do. <laughs> but Swamiji kept on at his same leisurely pace toward go, walking towards the lecture hall. Now, along the way, they pass a shoeshine stand. And there's no one. There's just a shoeshine boy or, or the man who's shining shoes. And he's, he's idle. He's waiting. Swamiji sits down and has his shoes polished. There's a whole audience full of people waiting for him to hear his talk. And he stops and has his shoes shined. And then he goes, uh, finally, he, he goes and uh, reaches the hall and gives the lecture. Uh, Mr. Allen then introduced him before the, before, to the audience. Of course, I feel like it, it, we could wait lifetimes to hear Swami Vivekananda. It would be worth it to wait lifetimes. Uh, what is 45 minutes <laughs> that these people had to wait? But it's, it's very humorous, and yet there's deep meaning in this incident. As a footnote, Mr. Allen adds, it was when I introduced him at that lecture that I felt like a pygmy and saw him as an immense giant. After this experience, I could not bring myself to stand beside him again, but always thereafter made my introduction from the foot of the platform. So he used to stand on the platform next to Swamiji and introduce him to the audience and then go sit down and he, he suddenly realized, I'm not fit to stand beside this man. So Swamiji was always in this exalted state of consciousness, uh, which really we can call this everlasting now of Emerson, the witness of all phenomena. Hmm? arising within himself. All is arising within himself. As a, another example of this state of his mind, when he came to Alameda just a few weeks later across the, across the bay, back in the day when there were no bridges, uh, Mr. Allen greeted him jovially, saying, Swamiji, I see you are in Alameda. No, Mr. Allen, said Swamiji gravely, I am not in Alameda. Alameda is in me. I often tell this quote. It's, it's, uh, it's shocking unless we understand the Vedantic standpoint. He is identified with that infinite consciousness, which is uh, the true nature of all of us. That's who, when he thinks I, that's what arises, that infinite consciousness. So everything arises within that consciousness. Time itself uh, is in consciousness. We are not in time. Time is in us. We are not in space. Space is in us, in the true us. For Swamiji to be late, he must be subject to time. He must be in time. But he has identified himself with the self, capital S, the Atman. So not with the body or mind. So he could say, all time is mine. I was telling this to someone, and she didn't like this. She said, but this, it's rude. All those people were waiting. How rude. You know, it was not uh, in respecting the people to show up so late. From our standpoint, that's correct. Interestingly, though, Swamiji was not 
a slacker as regards time. He was generally very prompt. He expected promptness from his disciples, from his monks. A bell would ring at four o'clock in the morning and all the monks were to get up and go to the shrine. And if they didn't, they would have to go and beg their food. So it's not that he uh, observed uh, Indian time. That means n- no, pay- <laughs> no paying attention to the clock. No, it was that when, when his mind was in a certain mood, he, he couldn't... He simply couldn't force himself to stick to the clock time. But ordinarily, he expected us all to stick to it. Uh, You know, the the Americans were always rushing, even at that time. And today, how much we rush. And Swamiji hated it. He He would say, this indecent hurry. Indecent, he called it. And time and again, people would say, we have to hurry, we have to catch a train. Why hurry? Won't there be another train? Hmm? Someone told him they were trying to catch a steamer and, and he's not rushing. And someone said to him, Swami, you have no idea of time. He replied calmly, No, you live in time. We live in eternity. I think we get a taste of this sometimes, this exalted state. In what, what are called peak experiences, we have a, a moment when time seems to stop. Perhaps we're listening to a beautiful piece of music, or maybe we're walking on a mountain top and the sun is beginning to set. Or maybe we are cradling our newborn grandchild in our arms. Hmm? And suddenly time seems to stop. Suddenly we become overwhelmed with love or with an awareness of the glory of this present moment. So we get taste of it. I think most of us, I hope all of us, have had a taste of this exalted experience. Perhaps it's in a temple, a holy temple, where a worship service is going on. How to cultivate it. Let's talk about some practical ideas, how we might cultivate this kind of awakening. The Buddhists give us a very practical teaching. Mindfulness, they call it. Mindfulness. Being, uh, keeping one's consciousness alive to the present reality. And this takes a lot of practice because as we talked about, mostly our minds start running back over past incidents or start imagining future incidents. Keeping our consciousness tied and awake to this present reality, what we are experiencing right now. Simply attend to the present moment. The wonderful book by a Vietnamese Buddhist teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh. Most of you have probably heard of him. And his first book was called The Miracle of Mindfulness. Why is it a miracle? Because if we can attend to this present moment, it miraculously frees us from this bondage to the past and slavery to the future. Right now, if we can attend to this moment. And they give wonderful teaching on just being aware of our breath. Just noticing our breath. Shall we try it for a moment? We can breathe in gently. 
and breathe out. And as we breathe in, we just note breathing in. And we hear someone's cell phone going, and we just say, cell phone going. No, we, we don't let the mind react and chase it up. There's a cell phone going. And a thought comes, and we say, ah, a thought has come. As thoughts come, we simply label them, ah, thought, thinking, thinking about my family, all right, breathing in, breathing out. Being aware of sensations, of what hurts. naming them, letting them go. What we're doing, we're starting to disidentify ourselves with, starting to disidentify ourselves from everything we are not. Our, the sensations, physical sensations brought in through the senses, and our thoughts also, we are beginning to, by naming them, and being aware of them, we are saying, well, I am not that. And we bring our awareness back to this present moment. And this power of breath, breath, which is the most visible manifestation of prana, our life force, becoming aware of that also brings us right here to this moment, as I am breathing in, I'm aware of it. This is really mm, very much in accord with Vedanta. Vedanta. In Vedanta, we'll just add one small, we'll make one slight adjustment to the Buddhist practice. We'll add that I am aware. Who is that I, that consciousness? We bring a self-reflective awareness of that consciousness in which I am aware of my breathing, I am aware of the thoughts, and identify ourselves with that. Whereas in Buddhism, perhaps we, the, the teaching is that there's no permanent self, there's just this flux. In Vedanta, we'll say, all right, the flux is there, and we can be aware of it and separate ourselves from it, and then find but that I am that consciousness in which this flux is being perceived. Hmm? Another practice which brings time, which masters time, which brings time to a stop, is the practice of concentration. When, and it, this is perfectly connected to this mindfulness, when we can really concentrate on, on being mindful of this moment or on being aware of our breath or being aware of our true nature, time collapses and the future and the, pres- and the past are collapsed into the present. Swami Vivekananda puts it this way. How are we to know that the mind has become concentrated, he asks, because the idea of time will vanish. He gives a, a, a perfect example. 
He says, the more time passes unnoticed, the more concentrated we are. In common life, we see that when we are interested in a book, for example, we do not note the time at all. And when we leave the book, we are often surprised to find how many hours have passed. All time will have the tendency to come and stand in the one present. So the definition is given. When the past and present come and stand in one, the mind is said to be concentrated. Now we have a, 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 another wonderful practice uh, which follows right from this, the practice of concentrating on God, on the divine name, perhaps, the mantra. And the more we concentrate on that mantra, the more we bring the past and the future to stand in the present. And the more we think of the divine, the more we become aware of the presence of the divine. Hmm? The presence of God is always here. God, that divine presence, is our true nature. So some, from one angle, we're talking about being aware of our own radiant consciousness. And from the other side, we can talk about being aware of that infinite consciousness which is the Lord, or which is the Divine Mother. And this is perfectly enumerated by that famous French monk, Brother Lawrence, who, whose work, The Practice of the Presence of God, I think you're studying with Swami C. also. Hmm? During our work, he says, during our work and other activities, even during our reading and writing, no matter how spiritual, and even during our religious exercises and vocal prayers, we must stop for a moment. We must stop as often as possible to adore God in the depths of our hearts, to savor him. Since you are aware that God is present to you during your actions, that he is in the depths and center of your heart, stop your activities and even your vocal prayers, at least from time to time, to adore him within, to praise him, to ask his help, to offer him your heart, and to thank him. Beautiful. From the devotional standpoint, this is how we come to stand in the present moment. This is how we come to own our moment and own our day, by being in the presence of the divine by keeping the divine presence constantly in mind. The divine is always here. Everything is unfolding in the divine presence, yet so often we are not aware of it. We have the opportunity, the wonderful opportunity, to see the divine peeping through every pair of eyes. We have the wonderful opportunity to see the divine peeping through every flower that is blossoming, through every raindrop that is falling. Even though it becomes more difficult, through every piece of trash that's lying in the street. Yes, there too the divine is shining. <laughs> mm. A great help here is in this kind of practice of awakening to the present moment is to, uh, to escape from this hurry-worry syndrome in which, which seems to run our society and our economy, the hurry-worry syndrome. Hmm? If we hurry, we're, we also start to worry. They go hand in hand. 
And the pace of modern life seems to be constantly speeding up. It's no longer yoked to the natural rhythms of the day and the natural rhythms of the season. It's now yoked to the unnatural rhythms of the silicon microchip. Hmm? That's what rules everything, right? Yes. It was April 24, 1900. Swami Vivekananda and Mrs. Alice Hansbro started for Camp Taylor, which is in Marin County. They would have to take a ferry from Alameda to San Francisco and then another ferry from San Francisco across the Golden Gate. There was no Golden Gate Bridge. And so they started, first for a train to the Alameda Ferry Dock. And, uh, well, they missed the first train to Alameda. They were, they were walking, and there was a little bit of hesitation uh, at the apartment before they left. Mrs. Hansbro wasn't quite sure she wanted to go. Finally, she decided, all right, she'll go. They got to the train station, and the train had just left. Well, there was another train just a block away, leaving some five minutes later. So they wa- were walking over there, and as they were arriving in the station, the train started moving. Okay? Now, there was a, a, the conductor was on the back of the train. Mrs. Alice Hansbrough, she called out, wait, wait, we're coming, called out to him. And he said, if you run, I'll wait for you. <laughs> Mrs. Hansbrough looked at Swamiji, and Swamiji simply said, I will not run. <laughs> so they had to go back to the apartment, and it took them a whole week before finally they made it to Camp Taylor. They did make it, and they had a wonderful retreat there with deep meditations under the pines. But uh, we we think, what? It was just a few yards. Couldn't you have run, Swamiji? Come on, don't you have to get... You want to go to Camp Taylor? You're not going to... What? You're not going to run? Swamiji would not run. He would not be hurried. All time was his. What does it matter if he goes to Camp Taylor or goes back to Alameda? It's very interesting to think about that. He would not run. a wonderful book by Eknath Ishwaran called uh, Take Your Time. And he gives a lot of hints about how we can start to really become the masters of our time, how we can start to own our days. I'll just share a few, maybe list them a little bit, just give us uh, some nice pointers on how to escape this hurry-worry syndrome and start to own our days and our moments. First, he suggests, if you don't want to always be hurrying, give yourself a little more time. Leave a little earlier. When you go to work, leave 10 minutes earlier and get, get to work five minutes before the hour. It gives you five minutes to uh, chit-chat with your colleagues before you sit at your desk and start doing your work or whatever your work may be. Hmm? Get, there, get there a little early. And then he suggests, uh, don't crowd your day. We always think we can do more things in a day than actually we can. And we, we think, okay, I'll do these six things. But if we really think about it, we'll understand we can't possibly do all these six things in a day. We need to whittle it down to something manageable. And uh, it's difficult because there's so much we can do and there's so much to read. We can't read everything. We can't know everything. We have to choose. So we choose wisely. And one thing at a time. Sometimes we think, well, there's so much to do. Let me do two things at once. 
But the human mind is such that it can only point at one thing at a time. So if we're going to do two things, then it has to be constantly flipping back and forth. Hmm? Yes. Ask ourselves what is important. What is really important in my day? And we can make a list of all the things we feel we have to do. And most likely, most, uh, we can cross off a good number of them as not really important. Not really important. And maybe that PTA meeting, after all, is not all that important. And it turns out that nobody even noticed that we weren't there. <laughs> uh, those kind of things. We get involved in so many unimportant trifles. It's a powerful reminder from one of our monks in one of his articles. He writes... Just as an elephant is held back by a small goad, a large number of people are prevented from going up in spiritual life by their endless interest in trifles. The daily routine of life absorbs all their attention, while their imprisoned souls watch tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, moving away from them, never to return. So, this interest in little tidbits of things not really important, but we get caught in those. Hmm? What's the latest gossip? What's the latest movie star? Who's the latest movie star dating? Those things. We can spend hours on all that stuff. Facebook makes it even easier to do that, right? And all the YouTube and all those things. So he suggests we take time for relationships. That's one of the valuable things for, for our, of our time, to, valuable ways to spend our time with our children, with our parents, with our spouses. Mm -hmm. Take time for reflection. Build a time for meditation into our daily routine. It is in meditation that we really learn how to slow our thoughts down, how we start, to, we learn to start uh, cultivating that one-pointed attention. Hmm? It's a very important daily meditation. And don't let, us, don't let yourself get hurried, he suggests. Uh, uh, taking the example of Swami Vivekananda. I put this into practice last week. I, I was in San Francisco, and my flight from San Francisco back to Los Angeles was canceled. So how am I going to get back? It's Christmas Eve. I want to get back to Hollywood in time for the... 6.30, a Christmas program. So there's a flight from Oakland. It's across the bay at uh, 3.10. So, all right, I get, I get booked on that flight, and I'm going to go. So I told myself, I'm not going to run. So I walked fast. I didn't run. I walked fast. I got on the BART, went all the way through, and I'm saying, I'm not going to hurry. I'm not going to worry. It's all right. And meanwhile, the clock is ticking, and it's ticking, and it's ticking. So I'm not going to hurry, and I get through the security finally, and I get to the gate, and the door is closed, and I just missed the flight. <laughs> so anyhow, there was another flight. I got on the next flight. I made it to Hollywood. I saw the, I, I got most of the Christmas program. I was about half an hour late, but I didn't run. So <laughs> that was my experience there. This, uh, this habit of doing one thing at a time, it's, uh, what, do, what do we call it? We call it multitasking. It's very distracting. And we think we can manage it. And yet, uh, 
it really throws us off balance. It, it's a great tiring, a tiring thing. And the Zen, the Zen Buddhists actually emphasize this. When you do something, do it with one pointed attention. Put your whole mind on it. Don't think about other things, just do that. There's one Jap, uh, Korean Zen master who used to say, when you sit, sit. When you eat, eat. When you read, read. Now some of his disciples one day saw the master sitting at the table, eating while reading. <laughs> they were upset. They said, Master, you always tell us when you eat, eat. When you read, read. But look, at what are you doing? You're eating and reading. And he looked at them and he said simply, when you eat and read, eat and read. <laughs> <laughs> A wonderful practice is to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Brother Lawrence hinted at that. Hmm? To thank him. To thank, to, to offer gratitude for everything that comes. For, not necessarily that we have to express it in words. Americans are notorious for thanking for every little thing. Maybe sometimes too much. Uh, but to cultivate that attitude of genuine gratitude. Hmm? For everything, everything pleasant and wonderful, and also those things that seem not so pleasant, not so wonderful. Our entire, our whole tendency is to reject our present experience when it is unpleasant. Hmm? All right, be present, aware, aware of the present moment. When it's pleasant, that's a good idea, isn't it? But when it's unpleasant, well, yesterday was better. Or tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow when it's an unpleasant moment. But uh, that keeps us in bondage. That keeps us in suffering. When we can embrace this present moment, even when it's uncomfortable, we start to free ourselves. Yes, problems come. We don't want problems. But how will we grow? How will we learn if we don't face problems? We should be thankful for our problems because they give us a wonderful opportunity to learn, to grow, to overcome our limitations and to manifest the divinity within under the pressure of difficulties. What is the goal of life? Is it to solve all our problems and to finish all our work? The goal of life is to know who we are. The goal of life is to experience the divine to manifest the divine in every action, in every word, in every thought, and in every moment without thought. That's the goal of our life. The goal is to become saints, to transform ourselves. And every problem calls us to do just that. So, even when we are suffering, if we can really be present to that suffering, it starts to diminish because it is, it is said that pain in life is inevitable, but suffering is optional. The suffering is this intense desire to make it stop, to forget about it, to get out of it. If we simply can accept it, even with gratitude, we free ourselves. And then there's a higher kind of gratitude, a higher kind of gratitude which is simply Gratitude for the experience of I, the experience of I am. 
the miracle of our own existence, when we start to taste the miracle that I exist, I am, I am conscious right now, right here, then naturally a gratitude arises for that beautiful experience, that miracle of our own glory. Mm. Emerson had some tips in this, uh, to, on karma yoga. How do we do our work? He wrote to his daughter who was studying in college, finish every day and be done with it. Be done with it. For manners and for wise living, it is a vice to remember. You have done what you could. Some blunders and absurdities no doubt crept in. Forget them as soon as you can. Tomorrow is a new day. You shall begin it well and serenely, and with too high a spirit to be cumbered with your old nonsense. This day, for all that is good and fair, it is too dear, with its hopes and invitations, to waste a moment on the rotten yesterdays. Hmm? Words of wisdom from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Today, this day is divine. It presents us with tremendous opportunities. Why waste it on yesterdays, on the rotten yesterdays? Yes, we all make mistakes in life. Let them go, let them go, let them go. Embrace this moment, because this moment is all there is. And in this moment, we are communing with the divine. If we can just become aware of it, how wonderful, how wonderful. So let me close with a quote from Swami Vivekananda. He says, The dead never return. The past night does not reappear. A spent tidal wave does not rise anew. Neither does man inhabit the same body over again. So from the worship of the dead past, O human beings, we invite you to the worship of the living present. From the regretful brooding over bygones, we invite you to the activities of of the present, from the waste of energy in retracing lost and demolished pathways, we call you back to broad, new-laid highways lying very near. He that is wise, she that is wise, let her understand. So I pray that we can learn to make this very moment our own, and every moment our own, and thus we shall own our days and own our months and own our years. And let this year, this 2020, which is a new year and a new decade, be the year in which we become masters of our time, masters of our lives, masters of every moment. Let's take a few moments of reflection. <clears throat> 